Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In today's episode, Dan examines Wolfgang Peterson's classic submarine drama, Das Boot. Is it the greatest war movie of all time, or should it just stay submerged? Continuing the naval theme, Steve talks about his fondness for the Steven Seagal action film Under Siege. Is it a 90s classic, or just a waterlogged die-hard rip-off? As always, dear listener, the final decision is up to you. Spoilers ahead. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to this special episode of Highbrow Lowbrow. Uh, today's theme is uh, naval films, so uh, a naval war film and a navy action thriller. Dan's got a, an excellent highbrow choice, and I have a slightly more uh, generic lowbrow choice, but we'll get to that later. So, Dan, do you want to introduce your highbrow choice for this episode? Hello, dear listener. My highbrow choice is Wolfgang Peterson, who passed away recently. His film Das Boot, or The Boat in English, or El Submarino, if you're watching it in Brazil. So it started out as a German TV miniseries in 1981, but we're going to concentrate on the 1997 director's cut. It's about a German submarine in World War II, captained by Jürgen Prochnow, who plays Captain Lieutenant Henrik Lehmann Willenbrock. And he is in charge of a German submarine. He's also got a journalist with him, Lieutenant Werner, and he has a lot of other staff. It's an all-male ship. It's set in 1942. It's engaged in the so-called Battle of the Atlantic to try and destroy British shipping. But the British have launched better destroyer-class boats, and the German U-boats are starting to take heavy losses. Now, it is based on a book by Lothar G. Buchheim, which I haven't read, but I believe it is quite good. The film opens with them carousing and having a party the night before, before setting sail. And the ship, it's brand new, it's gleaming, it's shiny. Everybody's got their finest uniform on. Everybody's happy, full of the patriotic spirit, and sailing off in this lovely new boat and... Over the course of the three hours, you kind of see just the psychological pressures of being trapped in what is basically a tin can underwater and knowing that you're losing the battle and that you seem to be abandoned. And, you know, when you need to get help, you're being told to go off and do another mission. So, for example, as the film progresses, the crew become more unkempt. The food starts to mould. At one point, there's a scene where it looks like they've got tin something other and they're having to pick hairs off it. The journalist, Lieutenant Ferner, is becoming despondent. The submarine is displaying just how weak it is, that as soon as it gets attacked by death charges, rivets start popping and they have to descend to the bottom of the ocean. And it's obvious that the thing is just being held together by some dodgy rivets. One of the things that the film does really well as well is get the whole claustrophobia i mean german world war ii submarines were not the kind of like if you've seen crimson tide or the hunt for red october the kind of spacious things that they were they were as claustrophobic and as cramped as you can imagine and the camera work is very good in getting right in there up in the actors faces following the actors as they swing themselves into the different compartments, you know, using the overhead bars, camera sweeps with them. And also there's one particular scene where a repair has to be done. And the only person who can do it is the chief engineer, Johan. And Johan is showing the signs of stress. And the captain knows that he is the only one he can send in. 
And so Johan is sent in to do this possibly fatal uh, mission in the engineering room. And you think he's going to crack or something's going to go wrong. But he does it out of sheer loyalty to his captain and his crew. But the psychological toll on them all is quite telling over the time. Although the director's cut is, it's over three hours, there was a two and a half hour theatrical cut done, which is a bit too short, bearing in mind that the original miniseries ran for 308 minutes. That's what, five hours, eight minutes. It cuts out kind of a lot of the plot lines, which I think are essential. The director's cut, which is the one that I recommend you start with if you haven't seen this before, is an essential distillation of the main points of plot and exposition and meeting the characters. And if you like the director's cut, then you should seek out the original TV series, which is in six parts. So it's not like you have to sit and watch five hours. Well, in fact, in one of the DVDs, it was all edited into one big five-hour movie. I think it had chapter breaks, but it wasn't episodic like the Blu-ray I have. It was all just one big movie of five hours, can you imagine? Now, the director's cut, obviously being taken from TV material, it was in stereo and it was remixed for 5.1 and extra sound effects were put in and the sound captures the kind of clunks and bangs and the especially when they're having to run silent because of the depth charges, just the noises that go on in the submarine. Where it falls down is, of course, when they surface, it's obviously shot in the studio. And when they're taking on another submarine or a boat, it's obviously a model. And that hasn't been reworked for the director's cut. So just be aware of that if you're watching it, that it was originally an 80s TV series, and therefore there are budgetary restrictions on what they can show. But one of the things that illustrates to me is just how absolutely ramshackle the war machinery was. The propaganda machine on all sides would have you believe that the soldiers were going out in all this brand new spanking stuff, state of the art. And really, when you look at it, it is just sheets of metal hammered together with rivets that crack under pressure. And young idealistic men who think they're doing the right thing for their country, but then whenever it all goes horribly wrong, that's when their metal is tested. And one scene that did stand out for me was when they sink the British ship. I believe under the Geneva Convention, any survivors they would have had to take on board. But it's when they're looking at all the soldiers in the water and realizing they haven't got room for them on board. They can't take them on board. They haven't got the room. They haven't got the provisions. And so they have to let them drown. Now, this isn't done in your standard war movie, evil Germans chin stroking, <laughs> have to let them drown in the water. These are people who are having a real crisis of conscience about what they are meant to do and what it is they can do. And I think that for me is the turning point in the film for a lot of them when they realize that this is war and war is hell and we are having to make some awful decisions that we don't agree with. So I think it is one of the best war movies I've ever seen if I'm honest with you. I think because in its honesty, its depiction of just how awful submarine life was, I imagine for both sides in the Second World War, and just how the great war machine takes up young men, chews them up and spits them out the other side. And the ending of the film is so downbeat, the submarine limps back into harbour. Obviously, it's a shadow of its former self and the crew are the same. And so then there's an allied an attack and a lot of them were killed off and the journalist is uh, effectively saying what was it all for was it worth it do you know something this was actually i'm mean, lying on a dvd player this is the first dvd i ever watched was the director's got a task boot oh, wow. um yeah we watched a couple of episodes whenever i was doing 
history for A-Level, which was <laughs> far too long ago, late 80s, early 90s, so the film wouldn't have come out. So we did see a couple of episodes, but this was recommended to me and I stuck it on, watched it with headphones and loved it. And I would recommend it if you like your war movies and you haven't seen this one, then I do think you should give it a go. Wolfgang Peterson preferred the director's cut out of all three configurations, so I would go with that one as starting. And then if you do like it, by all means, seek out the original uh, TV series. Basically, the best way to explain it is if you've seen the film of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and you remember the miniseries, or you've seen the film of Edge of Darkness and you remember the miniseries, the difference between the director's cut and the original TV series are pretty much the same. The films distill the essential plot points and characters and tell the story, but they miss out a lot of supplementary material, which fleshes out the story rather well. Wouldn't you agree, Steve, with that similar comparison? Yes, absolutely, because uh, if you've seen the miniseries first, I mean, I'm a, I worship at the altar of the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy BBC miniseries. I just couldn't watch the film because it cut out so much of the story and, and messed it around a little bit. But I, I also agree with having watched the director's cut for this version that it, it, it was a very good cut. I mean, it's three and a half hours long, so longer than the average movie. So there's a lot it managed to fit in. And I probably will go back at some point and watch the miniseries because now I'm really curious does it show their home lives at all? Does it show their wives or and stuff like that? It does give you a bit more exposition. It's been years since I've actually seen the miniseries, if I'm honest with you. It does flesh out the characters. I believe it does show a bit more backstory. Certainly there's a lot more on the boat itself. I think the best way to say it is more of the same. Yeah, I really like that the attention to detail is amazing. And it shows you the humour of the crew. And occasionally that humour goes a bit too far. And they're doing kind of hazing. You know, the fact that there's one toilet for all 50 crew members or however it is. It does, you start to think, yeah, it was, it was you know, sharing bunks at certain times and there's one doctor i remember thinking if the doctor got killed and they're the really screwed the only thing i i started to doubt towards the end was this u-boat had been through so much that i wondered if it was stretching plausibility to say it could have got back but some of them did you know uh, so the amount of depth charges attacks it survived i started to think could it really still be operating uh, to your point on that actually steve I think they could have shown it, obviously, blowing up underwater, but I think the ending that they went with it, it did somehow, by some miracle, make it back. And it is a miracle when you see the amount of damage the thing takes, that it even resurfaces at all. It was some miracle that they made it back. But I think showing that they made it back, but the whole thing was worthless, I think it's a better ending than just having it implode on the ocean floor. They went with the right ending. It was interesting as well, I thought, with the journalists, I thought, I bet the copy that they want isn't what's really happening on the boat. They want it all to be all this brand new machinery, state of the art, leading the battle to the British, blowing up lots of boats, you know, not getting a good old thumping with depth charges like they really are. So it was interesting to see the crisis of conscience on the journalist as well. And also to see the obviously upper class officer who thought he was slightly above everybody else you know, realising that he was just the same as everybody else. Yes, you're talking about the, the most pro-Nazi uh, one. It's interesting that he was born and raised in Mexico. Yes. He says on a, on a German plantation. Yeah. So if anything, he doesn't really know Germany other than a very German family. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. By the end, you get the distinct impression that his views have changed because he's given up a cosy life in Mexico for this. And you think, oh my gosh, the naivety. Even though they haven't invented smell o vision yet, didn't you just think I can almost smell the sweat and yeah. probably 
one toilet between 50 group uh, men, you know, smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I'm watching this, you know. And, and the grease and the, just that kind of metallic, tangy taste you can almost feel in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, it really could crack you up. And it's interesting that one character who really does have a, a full-blown mental breakdown, Johan, is one of the most experienced sailors. Because the captain says to him, you of all people, he doesn't realise um, just how unpredictable it is down there. Any Anybody could crack up, whether it's a raw recruit or someone who's been doing it all their life. Anybody could crack up under those circumstances. Also, at the start, you see the U-boat ace, who's a complete drunkard. This party you were mentioning earlier, where there's the nice little cabaret dancer, the old fancy, and everyone's uh, riotously drunk, and this U-boat ace gets up and he starts making this anti-Hitler speech. He's an embarrassment, you know, but he, he knows the truth. He knows that the, the war is futile, and, and he looks half dead. In fact, he almost passes out and almost chokes to death on his own vomit, doesn't he, in the toilet? So you're seeing the psychological effect war is having on them, and it's pretty awful. Dan, have you ever seen the Ellen Bleasdale two-part film, The Sinking of Laconia? I have not. It's very good. I think you'd like it. It's based on true story of the Laconia incident. And in that one, a U-boat sank a British ship off the coast of Eastern Africa. And the U-boat captain, despite being advised by second command not to, did you know, surface and started listening to the screams. And he just couldn't help himself. So he took on the survivors. And to show you the futility of the war, most of the passengers were actually Italian prisoners of war. So they ended up killing some like a thousand Italian prisoners of war who were their allies. But they took on the survivors and they managed to get them to a neutral port where they were exchanged. But it caused a huge stink back in Berlin. The top brass, you know, from Hitler downwards were furious because he'd put the ship in danger. And from that point on, the Nazi high command very little regard for the Geneva Convention. An order went out from the German Kriegsmarine to say, don't take on board any more survivors, it's too dangerous. I'm just reading about that here because one of the questions asked is why did Phil and Brock leave this British sailors in the water? You're referring to War Order 154, issued That's by the German Navy in 1939 after the Laconia incident, where the German U-boats picked up survivors from the transport ship Laconia and were subsequently attacked and sunk by US bombers. And it says here the whole movie, this is Das Boot, has been shot in such a way to convey how tight the quarters were on board a World War II German sub. There was barely enough room for the crew. Taking on princes would have meant having to feed and quarter them on the boat. But I will look that one up, Steve. Thank you. I've just made a note of it here. It's very good, yeah. It's it's a bit different from Alan Bleasdale's usual work. As you know, he's usually just kind of social realist dramas. Do you want me to tell you what I've written down? I wrote, I wrote Alan Bennett. It's <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Alan, oh, please, yeah. please do. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it makes me wonder how they shot this because it looks so claustrophobic. And usually the power of lenses in cinema makes things look bigger than they are, makes things look more spectacular. Now, I can't even imagine the crew looks so tightly in. How do you get a blooming film crew down there? You know, how do you get the man with the sound mic? And the guy holding the camera and obviously the director and the guy with the clapper and, you know, the makeup assistants and everything. And uh, do you know, was this shot on any kind of replica U-boats or was that all just set design? I think a lot of it would have to be set design and fake walls would be the only way you could do it. On one of the DVDs, there is a making of, but I think a lot of it is cameras on rails and because you are tight in on the actor, you can actually do away with a lot of the set and let your mind fill in the blank, and then you can get the camera in there. Oh, part of it was filmed out in the North Sea near Heligoland. 
but I think a lot of it is a bit of studio trickery. The other thing is as well, don't forget it was made for television. So they were using television style cameras, which might not have the same trickery as film cameras would. So it might've been easier to achieve the claustrophobic effect by virtue of the fact that they weren't using um, a standard movie camera, possibly. Or I wonder had the steady cam come in by that point, and then it could have been just somebody wearing a camera. Let me just check, Steve. Well, that's st interesting about the steady cam, yeah, because there were several shots which I thought were the most impressive when on the bridge when it surfaced, and they shout alarm because a plane's coming, and then they dive fast, and then the camera will follow one character running through the U-boat, and I don't know if there were hidden cuts. It didn't look like it, so and the camera is just racing through and it feels like you're running with that character mm -hmm. and obviously you're running through a very narrow hallway corridor whatever you want to call it and mm -hmm. the, those shots were just stunning i thought well it came out in 1975 it was first used in a really gothy documentary bound for glory in 1976 so it's quite possible that it was steadicam there's no mention of it on the steadicam wiki page but it being used explicitly in das Boot. But the fact that it was being used extensively by 1981 means that it is plausible. And in fact, that probably is how it was done, was Steadicam, as well as fake walls on the sets, I'm guessing. Maybe, Steve, it's better not to know these things and just enjoy the camera work, you know? Well, that's it. Yeah, that's sometimes why I, I steer clear of director commentaries and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't like the illusion to be shattered for me. Uh, and speaking of shattered, what do you think of the rest of Wolfgang Peterson's uh, output? Shattered, I liked. Shattered, I saw in the cinema and I watched it again on video at the time. And it's definitely one I would watch again. In the Line of Fire is, well, it's a capable thriller and it's fun. I don't think it's a high point in John Malkovich's or Clint Eastwood's careers, but it's not a bad movie either. If you want a decent Saturday night thriller, then you could you could go worse than um, In the Line of Fire. I'm just having a look at the other stuff he did. Um, the Never Ending Story is a childhood favourite of mine. Enemy Mine is a good little sci-fi classic. Outbreak, well, again, that's another one, not one of Dustin Hoffman's finest, but it is a fun movie to watch. And Air Force One, I'd forgotten he did with Harrison Ford. Again, you know, perfectly good, serviceable thriller. The well, perfect... it's basically Die Hard on a Plane with the President as John McClane, isn't it? So... It is, yes. <laughs> but Harrison Ford makes a good president. Yeah. I think. Um, the Perfect Storm, I enjoyed. Troy, I haven't seen. Poseidon, I thought was a pointless remake of the Poseidon Adventure, so that's a bit of a clunker. But for somebody, you know, who's made quite a few movies, I think he's got a quite a good hit rate on them all. So yeah, certainly yeah. Shattered is one I would watch again. Yeah, I thought that's a good example of the slightly trashy thriller that genuinely entertains. Mm. Because sometimes I, I go out to watch something trashy and it just ends up boring me a little bit. I suppose that's, you know, slightly around that kind of basic instinct, early 90s kind of erotic thriller that was in vogue. That was Tom Berenger and Joanne Wally, wasn't it? Yes. Or Wally uh, Kilmer's. And Greta Scacchi, that's right. Scally, and, yeah. And, and Bob Hoskins, yeah. Bob Hoskins! <laughs> Definitely have to watch that again, actually. Yeah. There can't be that many German war films that are about World War II. I mean, I think that when they do make a film, it's quite, I'd like to see Sophie Scholl about the, the female German resistance fighter who was executed. Then there was um, oh, the famous one with Hitler in the bunker. Um, yes, the one that's now a meme for everybody <laughs> ranting on about anything is that scene, Downfall. 
yes, yes. you know which people now use just that footage of him ranting yeah. to put any subtitles underneath <laughs> but it's a good film in its own right I, I i saw it not quite when it was first released but shortly thereafter and before the memes came out and, and i really thought downfall was a good film and now it is a bit hard to take seriously because those memes have just really taken off it is interesting to see things from the german side by German filmmakers, as opposed to something like Valkyrie, which is from the German side, you know, about the J July plot, but by British-American filmmakers. And it's a fairly candid description of war and what a terrible thing it was for humanity. And yeah, I'm up there with my favourite war films and definitely favourite anti-war films. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I wasn't sure. I thought uh, maybe I'll be put off by the long runtime, but I'm glad you find, like myself, once you get stuck into it, that suddenly three and a half hours is up and you think, oh, wow, that went really quickly. Yeah, I know. I really enjoyed it. And I think it was the making for a lot of German talent to go to Hollywood. You know, Wolfgang Peterson did and Jürgen Prock now did. Oh, but I've got an interesting point for you. Yeah. When you watched it, did you watch it in English dub or in original German with subtitles? German with subtitles. If you watch the English dub, Jürgen Prock now dubs himself. Oh. And a lot of the other major cast members, I think, dub themselves. Yeah. Bearing in mind the original was done in 81 and this was done in 97, so Jürgen had pretty much established himself in Hollywood by that point. But yes, Jürgen dubs himself, and I'm trying to think who else, but a lot of the main players dub themselves, which I think lends a certain authenticity to the dub. Yeah, And it means if you do prefer to watch dubbed versions of movies, you are getting still sort of like a different cast doing the dub, which for me works pretty well. But I yes, in a foreign language film, I always think you should be watching it in its original language with subtitles. Yeah, because I think you lose intonation and you lose the texture of the language otherwise, don't you? Yeah. Um, the, the only ones where I like the dub, just because they're fun, sometimes they like spaghetti westerns and, <laughs> you know, spaghetti crime fillers where the, the, the accents and the sinking just are so out of whack. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes Hong Kong yeah, <laughs> can be, from, from like the 70s maybe, the, the, uh, when they were churning out, um, they can be quite amusing, the dubs. Another unintentionally amusing dub was, I don't know if you've seen the film Run, Lola, Run. Oh, yes. Yeah, but the, I, I saw that in German, though. Uh, the, so I haven't you, seen the dub. Oh, you should listen to the dub, because her boyfriend Manny is dubbed in Cockney. <laughs> yeah. Lola, Lola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you're watching it again, watching this dub, I mean, it's a great film, but I think I'd watched it and I just thought, oh, let's see what the dubbing's like. And I turned it on. I liked it even more because it was like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you what, the, that U-boat crew, they do a great rendition of it. It's a long, long way to Tipperary. They do. Yeah. Good on so, it's Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you can tell the Nazi officer scowling that they're singing an English song. Yeah. Okay, well, a, a great film. Uh, I mean, shall we move on to my slightly lowbrow choice? By oh, comparison? please, Steve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. Go on, then. Oh, well, I've, I've not set an easy task for myself. So, well, after that excellent war film, uh, Dan's choice, I would like my lowbrow choice for this episode is the 1992 naval action thriller Under Siege, starring Steven Seagal, as our hero, Casey Ryback, and the villains played by Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Busey. So I'll start with the plot. Uh, so it's set aboard the USS Missouri. First of all, you see newsreel footage of it arriving in Pearl Harbor and President Bush is announcing it will be decommissioned. 
To put it in context, the USS Missouri is the most recent and final battleship to be commissioned by the United States to date. It was commissioned right at the tail end of World War II, 1944. It, it served in World War II, it served in the Korean War, it even served in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and then it's decommissioned. So you know the crew were on a, on a ship that's uh, on its last legs, but was the most powerful battleship of its day. So it's kind of drifting around in the Pacific and Ryback, played by Seagal, is the chief petty officer. He's the cook on board the uh, ship. And you'll get used to the line, I'm just a cook, I also cook. Is this guy a cook? <laughs> you'll just get used to the word cook coming up a lot in this film. It's kind of hilarious. But he cooks meals for the captain. You know, the captain adores him, his crew adore him. The only person who really hates him is Commander Krill played by Gary Boosie. Now, Krill is a mean-spirited, petty, vindictive officer, and he actually locks Ryback in a meat locker on the pretext that he doesn't want Ryback to spoil the captain's surprise birthday party. A helicopter is flying in and lands on the uh, Missouri. It contains what we are led to believe is a band, as well as cooks, <laughs> more cooks, private cooks, who are going to cook a dinner for the captain. It also features a Playboy playmate, played by Arika Alanayak, who was then at the height of her fame because she was on Baywatch. She's the she's a stripper, basically. So the party gets started, and it's all going well. Obviously, the crew are drinking alcohol. They've let the guard down. They're quite taken with the fact that there's a woman on board because they've all been at sea too long. But then it turns out Tommy Lee Jones is playing the lead band member, although he doesn't actually play an instrument other than the harmonica. It's kind of hilarious why they don't just shove a guitar in his hand and pretend that he's playing it. He's playing the harmonica. Then he shoots the highest ranking officer in the room. All of the cooks and the um, band turn out to be terrorists. They take over the ship. They murder the captain. They completely take over the ship. And they've got these nuclear weapons that the ship is carrying in their arsenal. And they plan to sell it off to the highest bidder. But they didn't count on one man. They've forgotten about... Casey Ryback, who's still locked in the meat locker. He manages to escape in quite a tense sequence, kill two terrorists, and then he arms himself with the terrorist guns, and then he goes out to kill them one by one. His only ally to begin with is the playboy playmate. I think the character's name is Jordan, Erika Elanayak, because in a quite, <laughs> quite un-PC and hilarious scene, he's looking at the carnage that the um, terrorists have, have unleashed below decks he's, he's seeing dead bodies of sailors on the floor he knocks over this big big birthday cake and out of it pops the playboy playmate erica and she starts doing a strip tease because basically commander krill sorry i forgot to mention that commander krill the gary Boosie character he's actually working with the terrorists it's down to him that he's used his influence to make sure they've got on the ship they've not been checked for weapons or anything basically he's, he's turned traitor that explains his vindictiveness from the start. You're, you're supposed to hate this guy. So when he gets his comeuppance, you know, you cheer. But he's he's a real wronger. But Gary Boosie gave Erica these um, very strong sleeping pills and tells her the aspirin or something. And she's completely been knocked out and she's in the cake. And then Steven Seagal knocks the cake. She bursts out. She does the strip tease. You know, this is quite eye-opening. And Seagal's like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and then she snaps out of the day's state that she's in. And Seagal explains to her what happens. He interrogates her and she becomes his ally. She's very naive at first, but they do give her some scenes where they actually give her something to do. And she becomes quite a good asset to him. 
and there's a hint of romance, but it's all very on PC. This is the early 90s. And, you know, today you'd think, well, there'd be female crew members on the boat, surely. So there'd be a more progressive way to introduce the romance, <laughs> the romantic factor of this film. She's the only woman in it. I think there was another, you spot another woman when they call back to the Pentagon uh, because Tommy Lee Jones is actually an ex-CIA agent and he's gone rogue. So he calls the Pentagon, he calls his, his old bosses in the CIA. And not only is he going to sell off the nuclear weapons, but he's, he's going to fire several at Hawaii to wipe out the population, but also wipe out the Pearl Harbor naval satellite equipment that could monitor him because he's got a submarine that he's going to rendezvous with and that will take the nuclear weapons off to a, a place where they can be sold off. But Ryback, if you're wondering why a cook can do all of this killing, and Ryback knows martial arts, he knows explosives, he knows how to handle weaponry of every manner. If you're wondering why a cook can do all these things, it's because he's an ex-Navy SEAL, and he's won every medal under the sun, and he's been demoted to cook, and very few people are aware of this, he's been demoted to cook because he, during the invasion of Panama, he punched out his intelligence officer because he was fed bad intel and that led to his SEAL team being wiped out. And it's actually implied that this intelligence officer is Tommy Lee Jones, because it's only implied, but you do get the sense that they know each other, they've got history, and this is going to be a good confrontation with them. So that's all I'll say plot-wise. From what I've told you about the plot, you're probably guessing already that this was billed as Die Hard on a battleship. And indeed, it was a spec script by J.F. Lawton that sold for $1 million, basically on, on the pretext of being Die Hard on the battleship. It was only a few years after the original Die Hard, and that was definitely in vogue. Uh, original title was Dreadnought, which got changed to Last to Surrender, and finally they settled on Under Siege. But I wouldn't take the Die Hard comparison too far. I don't think this film is as good as Die Hard, I've got to be honest. It's good, but it's not as good as Die Hard, which is probably the high watermark of the action thriller. It's closer to the Bruce Lee martial arts movies, to be honest, because Steven Seagal is not as good an actor as Bruce Willis, and Casey Ryback is not as good a character as John McClane, because he doesn't suffer as much as McClane. McClane suffers emotionally, you know, he's got a bad marriage and everything, and, and he also suffers cuts, punches. The whole thing was, it comes across as a bit too easy for Casey Ryback, but that's probably the tradition in the samurai type movies where Bruce Lee is going around wreaking havoc and killing everyone. That's kind of what we've got here. So it was filmed on board the USS Alabama at Battleship Memorial Park in Mobile Bay in Alabama. Actually, the submarine I referenced earlier was USS Drum, which was also a World War II submarine that sank 15 Japanese ships during World War II. The battleship setting and, and the submarine and all that looks spectacular. And, and the interior shots where they're all firing, it gets quite claustrophobic and it's very well done. It's what you'd expect because it's directed by Andrew Davis, who had previously directed Steven Seagal in Above the Law and was getting better and better as a director. He directed Tommy Lee Jones in The Package, which is a very underrated Cold War thriller. I advise you to check out. And he did this, which was one of the biggest hits in 1992. It was a huge commercial hit. And the following year, his career peaked when he directed The Fugitive with Harrison Ford and, again, Tommy Lee Jones. Okay, I should probably mention, I've, I've told you what I like about the film. It's a great action film. 
It's kind of inspired by that era of the Tom Clancy style techno thriller. You know, think of all the Jack Ryan adaptations and it involves the theft of nuclear weapons and state of the art, cutting edge technology. It's a good action film. It's highly entertaining. You can revisit it many times. It still it remains entertaining. Probably the weak spots are Seagal himself, although to be fair, it's Seagal's best film. His background was in the kind of straight to video action films of the 80s. He famously broke Sean Connery's wrist when he was teaching him Aikido for Never Say Never Again. He's not an easy man to like, and over the years, more and more bad stuff has come out about him. He's notorious for not pulling his punches and injuring people on set, <laughs> including the great Sean Connery. If you're going to win 007, you know you've got probably got anger problems. In fact, a lot of the um, performers who are playing bad guys in this are actually stuntmen who'd worked with Seagal before. And they went on record saying, well, we always knew he was a jerk. On this film, he'd actually calmed down a bit. You know, he had a good relationship with Andrew Davis. And I think he thought this was his big shot and you're not doing yourself any favours by being a jerk. So he did calm down a bit and threw himself into the role. Since then, oh my goodness, he's kind of returned to straight to video films. He's got his own reality TV show. He's in a blues band who have toured Liverpool, amongst other places and throughout Europe. They're not supposed to be very good. David Letterman famously reviewed their album, said, my ears are under siege. He's been implicated in the Me Too scandals. He is a Vladimir Putin apologist, has Russian citizenship, and was actually the US-Russia special envoy from 2018 until this year. He stood down due to the invasion of Ukraine. So he's kind of like a bizarre figure. He's completely out there. But, you know, this was his high point. He did this. He did a couple of other mainstream films like Executive Decision, and he did a sequel to this called Imaginatively, Thrillingly, and Ironically titled Under Siege 2, which is basically set on a train. So this one is like Die Hard on a Battleship, and the sequel is Die Hard on a Train. That's definitely in the So Bad It's Good category. <laughs> you know, I could, we could do a whole episode on Under Siege 2. But essentially, as the terrorists are taking over the train in Under Siege 2, he gets locked in the meat locker fridge again. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is such lazy writing. And it should go down as a camp classic along with Mommy Dearest and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because in that one you have um, a rogue CIA, actually computer analyst who's faked as deaf and has taken over the like Pentagon satellites using like floppy disk technology. It's the 1990s and, you know, technology was what it was. But anyway, sticking to this one, sticking to the original Under Siege, well, like, what can I say? It, it is a lowbrow choice. It's... Obviously, I can't say it's a work of art like Das Boot is. It's not exactly an anti-war film. It's, if anything, you know, you, you're getting your jollies out of watching people get killed and stuff. But it's, it's just well done. And I'm just grateful that someone like Andrew Davis directed it. And you've got Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Boosie. I mean, chewing the scenery for all it's worth, but they have to, you know, to make up for kind of Seagal's kind of stone-faced performance. And Arika Alanayak acquits herself quite well, frankly, considering it's somewhat of a thankless role. And some of the other crew members, you know, they add a bit of colour and they, they've got engaging personalities. When they get to do stuff, he, he liberates some of the other crew members later on. So that's it. That's my lowbrow choice for this episode, Under Siege. Listeners, I have to say that when Steve told me that this was his lowbrow choice, I had said I was genuinely proud of him, that he would have something so lowbrow in his repertoire. So I am still proud of you, Steve, for going to bat for this fine movie. I was laughing all the way through that, to be honest, because it is just what everything you said is true and going, it's terrible. Now, just a couple of things. In Under Siege 2, is it Eric Bognosian playing the computer analyst? 
Yes, and he's really good. He's in, he's enjoying the heck out of it, you know, just hamming it up. And I think he said, I can't remember the director's name. I think it was Jeff someone, and he passed away. It was a New Zealand Kiwi director, and he said from the first day, this is just nonsense, and we're just going to enjoy ourselves. And I think at the time, Seagal was going through a divorce from Kelly LeBrock, and he said, I was going through a divorce. I hope it doesn't affect my performance. I'm like, <laughs> uh, what performance, Stephen? <laughs> You're not in a Merchant Ivory film. Come on. <laughs> See, this is the thing, Steve. Tell me, did I spot a young Crate or Barrel from Bosch in this film as well? I can't remember if he plays Crate and who plays Barrel. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the guy with the bald head. Who, yes. um, yeah, he's he's a lot chubbier in Bosch. But yeah, he's quite good in it, yeah. yeah. Is he Crate or Barrel? Oh, sorry, I can't remember. Oh, right, <laughs> okay. But I did, I did spot a young Crate or Barrel from Bosch, that's fine. And of course, yes, Andrew Davis went on to make the excellent Fugitive. I did spot the parallel between the cook and the private was the same relationship between McLean and the cop in Die Hard. The thing is, it's a fun movie. It's just not a very good one, to be honest with you. And when I watched Steven Seagal, he was asked to join the Expendables, but he didn't see the fun side of it. And I thought, well, he was kind of obviously taking himself too seriously. And I thought, well, if you were a kind of established actor, I'd respect that. But you're not. You're a stuntman turned actor. And you're as wooden as they come the only thing i think in his favor was he objected to the jordan character not being given enough to do i think she was going to be an absolute airhead yeah. and he said i'm not having that so they actually did give her something to do and she does get some of the best lines like there's two things i don't do date musicians and kill people and then by the end of the film she's broken at least one of those rules so <laughs> yeah. It's like, next thing I know, you'll be dating musicians. Yeah. So it does have its moments in it. But yeah. I'm trying to remember, did I actually go and see that in the cinema? And I think I might have been sold on the Die Hard on a Boat thing. And then I did watch it again on video. And yes, thank you for sending me the version with all the cut bits put back in. It's amazing, isn't it? The BBFC cut 10 seconds. And yeah. you'd think with just 10 seconds, it's not going to change it. But it must be this fast editing, because the 10 seconds they cut are quite gruesome. I remember it being a 15 in the UK. Yeah. So I think it was more a commercial decision. They probably could have had those 10 seconds if they wanted them, but that would have pushed it to an 18 and it would have impacted the profitability. A lot of it is actually just cutting frames because for example, Die Hard 2 originally was a 15 when all the cuts were put back in. It was an 18, but all it was was instead of flash frames, a couple more half seconds of impacts and things like that. So it is for commercial reasons, definitely, that these things are cut. I'd forgotten about the death by Girder, but in case you haven't seen the film, dear listener, it's a bit where somebody's walking underneath and there's a cut-off bit of Girder and Stephen Seagal just drops it on them with predictable results. I think it goes through their chest and then into the floor below. <laughs> and of course, baddies discover this and it's just an absolute mess of a body. The problem with this as well was from the off, you get the impression that Casey, the cook, I just thought, even if I didn't know the plot, just something says to me, you're not a cook. From the off, I just know that you're not a cook, that you've got a secret. And then it becomes not a case of, is he going to win? It's how is he going to off them? And that final fight between him and Tommy Lee Jones is actually quite underwhelming. I mean, it's just kind of them stabbing each other with knives, really. I thought I was expecting the right punch up because I thought I'm sure Tommy Lee Jones can throw a punch with the best of them. I think it's quite well choreographed. I quite like it. I mean, because it's something like three minutes long. And when he's taking out the other bad guys, it's like seconds. Hmm. But I think they're, they're almost using the knives in the same way in an old swashbuckler that I have swords, yeah. you know. But Dan, have you seen On Siege 2? 
Yes, I have seen Under Siege too. That's that's oh, why yeah. I asked about Eric. Oh yeah, Ozean sorry, I'll, I'll because, I, pardon, yes. because I thought, have I seen this film? And the one way I'll know if I've seen it will be if I've seen Eric Bognosian playing computer analysts, and I have. So yes, I have seen Under Siege too. I think I know the Kiwi director you're mentioning, Jeff. Um, hang on, I'll get his name because I have seen he did the, the Quiet Earth, I think. Which um, yeah, let's just have a quick. Well, look. I mean, it's so lazily scripted because. You know, in this one, Tommy Lee Jones had a CIA case officer who they, yeah. they drag into the Pentagon saying, why have you been funding this guy? He's completely out of control. And then guess what? In Under Siege 2, the CIA case officer has been funding Eric Bogosian. And it was just like, have you not <laughs> learned your lesson? Do not trust this guy. Do not let him hire people. <laughs> the director you're referring to is Jeff Murphy, uh, who also did Dante Speak. But yes, I, so I have seen Under Siege 2. I think I saw it on the telly. Thank God. Yes, I'm glad people went in with that attitude. This is rubbish. We might as, well some, might as well have some fun with it because, yes, it wasn't great. The other thing that got me was um, the kind of time jumps in the movie. I mean, it took for a movie that was about one hour, 50 minutes, if I recall, it took the good first half to really get underway and establish things. And then it meant by the second half, this crane that hadn't been built ticked somebody off to have helped somebody else finish the crane. Next scene, the crane's finished. It seemed like an absolute race to the end. So I thought there were a few pacing issues there. They could have maybe sped up the opening a bit and then given themselves more time, ironically, for when it really takes off. There's a lot of continuity errors. I must. Yeah. When you've seen the film a few times like me, you spot more and more each time. Steve, um, how many times have you watched it? Oh, probably at least half a dozen. But there's, there's someone who, who puts kill counts on YouTube. Have you seen these kill counts? Yes, I have. Yeah, I mean, they're quite good. I mean, you can't be bothered watching the film. You can just watch the kill counts of all the kills just sliced together. But, you know, Seagal takes out at least 30 terrorists on this. He takes out more terrorists than you see on the helicopter being flown in. And you're like, mm, I'm not quite sure the logic here. Occasionally you'll see shots where it's like, I'm sure that guy died five minutes ago. <laughs> I think the reason with this was a big hit is it's a big melange of things that people wanted, like Die Hard. Also, it's the Cold War had just ended, the Tom Clancy naval or techno thriller was just in. It just seemed to mix a lot of things that people enjoyed. There was rumours of a third film for several years because it seems like every franchise is being revived right now. We'll probably see another Steptone sort of film or something before this finishes, but it just didn't take off. Probably because, you know, Seagal is very much a tarnished figure. You've probably noticed he's gained a lot of weight you know, if he is just a cook, I think he's been, you know, dipping into his supplies quite a bit. He must have doubled in size. So it would be a little harder to believe that he could be this, you know, super shape, you know, Navy SEAL who can commit every act of martial arts. So maybe they could do a retro con or something with a newer actor, because it does seem like with the stars today, like Hemsworth and all them, is that, you know, they have to go to the gym for something like 10 hours a day. They are in ridiculously good shape. So they could hire someone else, someone less tarnished. Do you know what they could do? And I thought this actually would have made a better plot. He could be the rogue CIA agent. You keep thinking, oh, it's him. He's the goody. And in fact, he's the one this time around who's turned rogue. Or I thought watching this uh, end receipt, I thought, wouldn't it have been a far stronger plot if he deliberately got himself demoted to get himself planted as cook on that ship, and he's the one pulling the strings. 
Okay, yeah, or something different. Okay. <laughs> so um, I thought maybe if he does something like that for the third one, he might get away with it. I was just, while you were mentioning that, um, I did Google Under Siege 3. Apparently, as recently as 2016, he was working on a script trying to get it off the ground, and HBO Max are possibly rebooting the original, not with him in it. But this is on about 10 months ago. We shall see. Yeah. We shall see. But if his brand is as tarnished as you said, is I knew he'd been caught up in Me Too, but I didn't realize he was quite such a controversial figure as he is. Yes, um, yeah. Um, I don't know if we'll ever see the, the, the other Steven Seagal film I have seen. And unless you fancy seeing Michael Caine in a really bad wig, and God only knows what they've done with his makeup on Deadly Ground should be avoided at all costs. Which have he directed. It? Yeah, which he directed, I believe. What, Michael Caine? No, Steven Seagal directed it. Oh, right. That would have been better if Michael Caine had directed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just double check that. Uh, I'm okay. sure he directed it because he wanted to get across its ecological message, you know, save the planet, uh, oil companies are evil. Steven Seagal, good. Michael Caine, evil. See if you yeah. can work that out for yourself, viewer. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. in case. Directed, co-produced and starring Steven oh. Seagal. Who wrote it? Oh, two guys, Ed Horowitz and Robin U. Russen. But I imagine Seagal had a big hand in the script. The music was by Basil Polidorus, who did both Under Siege films. Uh, yeah, that, that one is just terrible. And yeah, Michael Caine in kind of pancake makeup, just terrible. And yeah, a lot of him saving all the local tribes who are being forced out of their homes for the oil companies. Um, not exactly subtle. <laughs> oh, produced by Seagal Nasso Productions. Seagal, um, get off my Roy rig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His uh, ponytail in the 80s caught a lot of attention. And I think he has this ponytail trend for this. But of course, right. he's in the Navy. You've got to have short hair. Yeah. Uh, and shaven. So, And if they were to do a third, I mean, if they retrocon it, they can... I don't know if they could do a battleship again, because I think the whole point of this one is that battleships are things of the past. Yeah. But if they were to do a third one with Seagal, where would they put it on, on a plane? I think essentially executive decision is a little bit like on the siege on a plane, but in that one, twist is Seagal gets killed off halfway through it, and you're left with Kurt Russell, who's you know a much better actor, so it's better for him to take you through the film than Seagal. Uh, yeah, Mr. Seagal, if you happen to be listening to this, we do like you really, but doing, exp <laughs> doing expendables for heaven's sake, get over yourself. Um, yeah, I think he needs to. Well, I mean, he did machete, didn't he? So you think we must did. have a certain sense of humor. If John Claude Van Damme can see the funny side and get involved, and if Harrison Ford can see the funny side and get involved, then, you know, why can't you? Yeah, exactly. But actually, Steve, here's the question, and you know this question's coming, because I warned you I was going to ask this question. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, go In on. episode one, if you remember, dear listener, Steve absolutely thumped the Expendables. And yet here he is defending <laughs> Under Siege. Steve, please explain. Okay, good good question, yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say, yeah, The Expendables is a tribute to films like this. But for me, there was no sense of fun to The Expendables. There was no sense of suspense. I can't even remember in The Expendables why they go off to that island. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, but at least this is a plot that the terrorists have taken over the battleship because they want to sell off the nuclear arsenal. They're led by a rogue CIA agent who's completely lost his way. The CIA actually tried to kill him. He was going so insane. And it's not exactly plausible. It would never be that easy to get on board a battleship. But there is a sense of plot. And, you know, like I say, I can watch this. It reminds me of growing up in the 90s. In fact, if you watch the trailer, 
I highly recommend the trailer just as a little sweetener because um, it is so 90s. You know, it, it's just very, very nostalgic to me. And I, to me, The Expendables didn't tap into that kind of nostalgia that I was hoping for. Despite having all of these stars will look a bit over the hill. I, I, there was no joy to it for me. It was just, you know, noisy. I mean, I haven't seen The Expendables 2, which you recommend, uh, which I may, may you know, I, I might try, you know, just because it's, you know, not directed by Stallone. So uh, it might be a bit better. Uh, but look, I'm not saying that this is a masterpiece. It's not Shakespeare. But if you're going to go for a lowbrow choice, I'd, I'd say go for this one. But I think, I'll be honest, it's not as good as Die Hard because Die Hard, at least the first one, and then to an extent the second one, but it's Law of Diminishing Returns, the first one is an emotionally involving movie and with a great performance by Willis and a really fun performance by Alan Rickman. Whereas this, Sigal can't act, let's be honest. So Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Boosie, who has also recently been implicated in a Me Too scandal only a matter of weeks ago. Oh. Yeah, I think he's been charged. It's pretty serious. But they walk away with the acting honours because there's not much else going on here. And it's not much from Sigal in terms of acting. I think Andrew Davis knew because he'd worked with Sigal and he's just like, let Sigal do the stunts, let him do the killing and that sort of stuff. And we'll leave the acting to the professionals. Well, to be honest with you, dear listener, um, I am actually proud of Steve for bringing this forward as a low bright choice. It's a decent action flick, if I'm honest with you. It's certainly not up there with the grits, but it was fun for me to watch it again because I watched it at the time and I thought to myself, well, this is dated really badly. And yes, it has, but it was still fun to watch. Okay, dear listener, thank you for listening to this episode of Highbrow Lowbrow. And I hope you enjoyed us wittering away about both our choices like i say das boot which i think is one of the all-time great war films and under siege which is not one of the all-time great action films but a pretty good action film and and one that i would recommend to while away a a winter evening I'm, i'm sure that you will enjoy and have lots of fun about watching it and we look forward to uh returning with our show and we'll we'll see you next time goodbye bye bye You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.